In this session, uh, we're going to look at the Shahada, the Confession of Faith in Islam, and also uh, the role of Muhammad as part of that covenant. The Shahada is a covenant of commitment to Islam. If someone becomes a Muslim, they say that, and by doing that, they've actually become a Muslim according to Islamic law, and that's the, the, the time at which they, they affirm their entrance into the covenant of Islam. Um, but if someone's born a Muslim, they grow up being trained to say the Shahada, so they have said it themselves many times in their life. So every Muslim, whether they're born a Muslim or whether they become a Muslim as an adult, is under the Shahada, the Confession of Faith. But before I unpack what that means and the significance of Muhammad as part of that statement of faith, I'd like to consider firstly what is the human problem according to Islam, because that sets uh, the, the meaning of the Confession of Faith in its fuller context. If you ask a Christian just about anywhere in the world what's the problem with humanity, they will say sin is the problem. Uh, it's deliberate disobedience, uh, the human will setting itself against God. In fact, the book of Genesis describes how sin rises up and, and the inclination of people's hearts is, is for evil, as it's described in the book of Genesis. In Islam, however, sin is not the problem. It's not the fundamental human issue. Um, there is a, an awareness of sin, but it's not the big, big deal. The big deal in Islam, the big problem, the reason why people fail uh, in Islam to, to please God is ignorance, ignorance of the rules. Um, the, uh, the, the principle of relationship to God, uh, if you could call it relationship, or of the status of humanity in relation to God in Islam, is that God is a master and human beings are slaves. And the challenge for them as slaves of the master is to work out their job description so that if they're doing their, their work around Allah's house, they do the right thing according to the right description. So basically, the natural state is ignorance, um, not, not sin or evil or good, but just ignorance. And what they need is guidance. And Islam promises that if they're rightly guided, then the outcome will be success. In the Christian faith, the problem is sin. The solution is forgiveness, an act of God uh, to forgive us. And the result of that is rescue or salvation. But in, in Islam, salvation is not really a major theme. Rather, the focus is on ignorance, guidance, and success. In fact, the call to prayer that sounds out um, every day, uh, in fact, five times a day from the mosque, is Allah is greater. I witness that there's no God but Allah, that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, and then come to worship, come to worship, and then the call says, come to success, come to success. So Islam promises that if you are rightly guided and follow the guidance, then you will be successful. The Quran also speaks of those who do not uh, follow the guidance as the losers. Uh, for example, in, in chapter 3, it's Surah 3 of the Quran, whosoever des desires another religion other than Islam, it shan't be accepted of him. So if you have any other religion, it's not acceptable, and in the next world, you'll be among the losers. Or in chapter 39, verse 65, if you associate other gods with Allah, your work will fail and you'll be among the losers. So Islam divides the world into winners and losers. And if you affirm uh, your faith in Islam and follow Muhammad according to Islam, you'll be a winner. Well, the way you enter into this group of winners and become one of the successful ones is to affirm your faith in, in submitting to Allah by saying the shahada, the confession of faith. And uh, this, this confession of faith, ashahadu an al <laughs> And this confession of faith, Ashahadu an la ilaha illallah, wa ashadu an Muhammadur Rasulullah, is uh, a statement that you confess that there's no god but Allah, and confess that Muhammad is Allah's messenger. And what I'm going to focus on is the second part of it, because 
The first one is a statement that there's only one God and that, that God is Allah as revealed in Islam or in the Quran. That's one thing. But it's really the second statement that's the most important statement in many ways. It determines everything else. Belief in Muhammad as Allah's messenger, the messenger of Allah. Now, the messenger means a guide. He's the one that's brought the guidance from Allah to help us to know how to submit to Allah. And Islam teaches that if you follow Muhammad's example and his teaching, then you'll be guided rightly. We have the guidance of Muhammad in two forms in the Quran, um, the book of Revelations, directly word for word, it's believed from Allah, and also in the Sunnah, which is the example of Muhammad, the things that he did and the things that he said and the things his companions also did. When you affirm in the Shahada that you believe that Muhammad is Allah's messenger, you're affirming your, your, your support and your belief, your commitment to follow the Sunnah, the teachings and the examples of Muhammad. So you're tying yourself, you're establishing a soul tie between yourself and the person of Muhammad, his teaching and his example. Now one thing that's very important to understand is that the Quran repeatedly says that you have to follow Muhammad. So if you, even if you just believe in the Quran, you have to follow the example and the teaching of Muhammad. And it says this many, many times. Uh, for example, chapter 4, verse 59, O believers, obey Allah and obey the messenger. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 80, whoever obeys the messenger, that's Muhammad, is obeying Allah. In chapter 24, verse 46, Allah guides whoever he wills on the straight path. Notice that theme on guidance. Um, and they say, we believe in Allah and the messenger and we obey. That's the essence of, of, of being on the right path, following Muhammad. Chapter 24, verse 54, say, obey Allah and obey the messenger. If you obey him, you will be guided. You'll be on the right path. Chapter 33, verse 36, it's not for any believer, man or woman, when Allah and his messenger have decreed a matter. So if Muhammad has said something and Allah has spoken through Muhammad, you're not supposed to have any choice in your affair. Whoever disobeys Allah and his messenger have gone astray in manifest error. And there are many other verses uh, that make this point in different ways. It says you're not a believer in God until you submit to Muhammad. So... In chapter 4, verse 65, they will not believe till they make Muhammad the judge regarding the disagreement between them. That is, Muhammad is the guide. And they will find in themselves... Um, uh, it says in chapter 4, verse 65, that they won't be true believers until they make Muhammad the judge between them, that he's their guide. It also says in chapter 24, verse 52, those who obey Allah and the messenger and fears Allah and has awe of Allah, then you'll be triumphant. So if you follow Muhammad's example... You'll be triumphant, not just successful, but you'll be on top. And you'll be blessed in chapter 4, verse 69. Whoever obeys Allah and the messenger, they are the ones that Allah has blessed. Also, Muhammad's life is said to be the best example. You have a good example in Allah's messenger. Whoever hopes for Allah in the last day and remembers Allah often. So that's chapter 33, verse 21. And also the Quran says that Muhammad's example and his character is really amazing. Uh, the Quran is speaking to Muhammad and says, you are not by the blessing of the Lord a man possessed. People had been saying that he was possessed by evil. And, the, and God says to him in the Quran, you're not possessed. Surely you have a mighty morality. So you have a, a fantastic character. And um, also the Quran says that Muhammad is not subject to deception or to error. By the star when it plunges, your comrade is not astray, neither errs, nor does he speak out of his own, own will or his own desire. Um, so in many ways, the Quran says again and again that you have to follow Muhammad's example. That's the only way to do it. And he's the bee's knees. So when you become a Muslim, you tie your heart to Muhammad's heart. 
Now, the other thing is the Quran says that if you oppose Muhammad, it's very bad news. There's a curses attached to the Shahada. If you affirm the Shahada, you curse yourself if you turn away. Um, because you agree that he's the messenger, that the, the Quran is true, and the Quran has very bad things to say about you if you say no. So chapter 4, verse 115, those, whoever makes a breach with the messenger, those disagrees with him, after the guidance has become clear, and follow another way, other than the way of the believers, him we will turn over to what he has turned to, and we shall roast him in hell, an evil homecoming. So basically, if you've agreed that Muhammad's the messenger, and you turn your back on that, and go your own way, you're going to be roasting. And also chapter 8, verses, verse 12 to 13, it says, encourage or confirm the believers, I will cast into the unbelievers' hearts terror and smite them on the necks and chop every finger of them because they've made a breach with Allah and his messenger. They've, they've walked away from Muhammad. And whoever makes a breach with Allah and his messenger, surely Allah is terrifying or terrible in retribution. And uh, chapter 59, verse 7 of the Quran, whatever the messenger gives you takes, whatever he forgives you, take it over, and that is accepted. And fear Allah, Allah is terrible in retribution. There you are again. You've got a terrible lot to fear if you don't follow Muhammad. Whoever rebels against Allah and his messenger, there awaits the fire of hell, and they shall dwell there forever. That's chapter 72, verse 23. Now, these are like curses attached to the covenant of the Shahada. And it's a very interesting thing. You can agree to become a Muslim just by saying, I confess this, no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. It's just a few words. But what you do when you do that is that you give your spiritual signature to a whole lot of conditions and principles that are found in the Quran and the life of Muhammad. And including in those principles are certainly promises of blessings, but also many curses. So you, when you say the Shahada, you have cursed yourself with death and fire and, and uh, the, the penalty of, of punishment in hell if you disagree with any of Muhammad's principles. So that's quite an important and, and heavy thing to understand that what's involved when you say the Shahada. So if you accept the revelation that comes from Muhammad, if you say that he is the messenger, then you're really duty-bound to follow what that means. Now, his followers were in fact almost slavish in the way they followed the details of his life. They observed Muhammad very closely in order to do exactly what he did so they would please God. Um, one of his followers was questioned about why he was wearing tanned leather shoes and why he dyed his hair red with, heather, with, with henna. Why are you wearing uh, tan shoes and why, you, uh, why have you got red hair, dyeing your hair red? And he said, regarding the tanned leather shoes, I saw Allah's apostle wearing non-hairy shoes and he used to perform his ablutions wearing the shoes. So he'd, he'd do his prayers and wash himself wearing these shoes. So I love to wear similar shoes because Muhammad wore tanned leather shoes. And as for the dyeing the hair with henna, I saw Allah's apostle dyeing his hair, and that's why I like to dye my hair as well. So Muhammad's followers emulated, they copied what he did and said in very great detail. Uh, pious Muslim men wear big beards. Why? Because Muhammad did. Muhammad wore a beard. So that means you should, because it, you, you could roast in the fire of hell if you don't do exactly what Muhammad did and said, you should follow him in, in, in great detail. Now, it's important to realize that... Um, some of the, the really core things about Muhammad's life uh, uh, have influenced the, the very centre of Islamic practice. Um, uh, the, 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 the details of what Muhammad did and said are recorded in hadiths, which are traditions, single sayings collected in large volumes. There's thousands and thousands of them that describe the things that Muhammad did and said. And we also have the sirah, the biographies of Muhammad, 
And there are many, many volumes involved of material that describe all this. But in, included in these materials are some of the most foundational principles of Islam that aren't really explained clearly in, in the Quran. Uh, for example, um, uh, Muslims might tell you that there are six basic beliefs. If you, if you buy a little, or if you're given a little booklet in a mosque explaining Islam, they'll almost certainly have the six basic beliefs. Belief in Allah, belief in angels, belief in the scriptures, belief in the apostles, belief in the day of judgment, and belief in predestination. Now you might ask the question, where do these beliefs come from? Did some very clever Muslim work them up uh, a few centuries after Muhammad? Or are they in the Quran? No, they're actually in the life and the teaching of Muhammad. Because one day uh, someone said to Muhammad, tell me about faith. And Muhammad said, you should affirm your faith in Allah, in angels, in the books, in apostles, in the day of judgment, and in the divine decree to good and evil, that is in predestination. So these core six basic beliefs of Islam derive from what Muhammad didn't said. They're not in the Quran. Also, the five pillars of Islam are not listed anywhere in the Quran. Uh, some of them are mentioned, but they're not listed in one place. That's from the hadiths. It's from the traditions of Muhammad. It's, it's Muhammad's teaching that, that brings us to these ideas of the five pillars that Muslims practice. Even the most basic level of following Islam includes these five pillars, but it's not in the Quran. Um, and in fact, Muhammad said, according to Ibn Umar, uh, Islam is based on five principles to testify in Muhammad, that's to say the Shahada, to perform the compulsory congregational prayers, to pay zakat, which is like alms to the mosque, to perform the hajj, the pilgrimage, and to observe the fast during the month of Ramadan. So the reason why they are the five pillars of Islam is not because of the Quran, but because what Muhammad did and said. In fact, you, you don't, a Muslim, a pious Muslim would not know how to pray if it weren't for Muhammad's teaching an example, because all the details of the, of the movements of the body and the things you say in the compulsory prayers, they are also found in the example and the teaching of Muhammad. Now, when we're looking at the example of Muhammad, it's very important to ask what sort of character he was. Because when they say the Shahada, and you agree that he's the messenger of Allah, you are binding yourself to his example. And one of the sad things is that many people become Muslims without knowing what Muhammad did and said properly. They don't take the trouble. They bind themselves to this man, but they don't know who they bound themselves to. If you get married, it's a good idea to find out the person that you're married to, what they're like, how tall are they, um, what size they are, what they look like, what their voice sounds like, uh, their character. You sort of want to know a little bit about them. I know in some cultures, families arrange the marriages, but even then, the families will consult carefully and consider the two people and pay attention to, to what they're like. They don't just sort of marry blind. Um, but many people become Muslims as if they're blind. It's like they put on a blindfold and walk into the house of Islam. But this is something very important to know about Islam. As the, uh, the great uh, Indian, later Pakistani scholar Madhudi said, is that Islam is a one-way door. You can go in, but you can't come out. And it's simple to come in and declare that you believe that Muhammad's a messenger of Allah. But what you need to realize is that you bound your soul to his example and his teaching. And uh, that has some very serious consequences. In fact, Muhammad has some uh, really uh, unpleasant things about his life. There are some things that are quite decent. He, he stood up for orphans and was concerned for widows. But there are some things about Muhammad's life that don't meet contemporary ethical standards. And in fact, some things that are absolutely shocking. In fact, there are things that Muhammad did that would put him into jail in most countries of the world many times over. So it's, it's a very serious thing to bind yourself to the example of a man like that. 
it's very interesting, in fact, that even the early scholars of Islam were aware of the problem or sensed the problem of the difficulties in Muhammad's example. One of the criteria for testing whether hadiths, where the traditions about Muhammad were genuine, was that if they reflected badly on his character, they should be uh, rejected. For example, Muhammad Subhar Siddiqui, in his um, classic work on the hadith literature, said that traditions containing remarks of the prophet that are unsuitable for him should be rejected. <laughs> uh, so um, there was a, a sense that some of the things that were said about Muhammad and remembered about him were a bit dodgy. But despite that test, there's a lot of material uh, that's uh, accepted by Islam that puts Muhammad in a very bad light. <clears throat> and I could give you many examples, but one particular example, uh, which is found in the Sunan Ab Abu Daud, is um, of a man who had a slave wife, a woman who was a concubine who bore children to him. And this woman didn't like Muhammad and used to say bad things about him. So one time this man uh, took a dagger and, and pushed it into his wife's stomach and he killed her. And when the morning came, Muhammad was told about it and uh, gathered the people together. And uh, the man uh, stood up in the mosque and Muhammad uh, spoke to him. And uh, the man said, I'm, I'm, this, I'm this woman's master. Uh, she used to abuse you. And uh, I used to tell her to stop abusing you, but she wouldn't. So I rebuked her and she just wouldn't stop. And I've had two sons from her and she's my companion, but she began to abuse you. So I took my dagger and I pushed it on her belly and I pressed it in until I killed her. And then Muhammad said, oh, bear witness, no retaliation is payable for her blood. So basically Muhammad said, that was a cool thing to do. No worries about taking your wife's life because she'd insulted me. So things like that are in Muhammad's life. And if you bind yourself to that sort of view and uh, teaching, that's a spiritual contract that you make that's uh, very, 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 very serious. Uh, one of the things that was part of Muhammad's character is the sense of his superiority. He claimed to be better than other people and better than other prophets. He said, for example, I, I have been given superiority over the other prophets. What are some of the reasons that Muhammad said he was superior? He said, I've been helped by terror. That is, he cast terror in the hearts of his enemies. And he's been given permission to take booty. Now, these are not things that you really want to emulate or that you want to be copying. You don't want to be someone taking booty and casting terror into people's hearts. But if you bind yourself to Muhammad's life, you bind yourself to someone who felt proud of doing things like that. Another thing that's quite important when you say the Shahada and you tie yourself into Islam is you bind yourself into Muhammad's life as the principle for interpreting the Quran. Actually, interpreting the Quran is not very easy. There are lots of reasons. The Quran is not written in a sequence, in a narrative sequence. It's, it's not in chronological order, so it's quite hard to understand. And the principle that makes sense of it is Muhammad's life. Um, the, the elements in the Quran are organized about in terms of what, what was happening in the life of Muhammad when they, were, were, when they were, were revealed to him, as it's claimed, and also the sequence of, of events in Muhammad's life is very important as well. It needs to be set into the context of Muhammad's life. One of the principles in Islam is abrogation, that the later texts abrogate the earlier texts. Uh, that's basically the idea that the last guidance you receive is the best guidance. And the problem with that is um, that as Muhammad went through his life, he became more violent, and the Quran's messages become more violent as well. And the effect of that transformation in Muhammad, the way he lived, is that the violent messages in the Quran become dominant, and they are the basis for, for interpreting uh, the peaceful verses. This is in the Quran itself, uh, in chapter 2, verse 106. Whatever verse we cast into oblivion, uh, whatever um, whatever verse we abrogate or cast into oblivion, Allah says, we bring a better. 
Uh, don't you know Allah is powerful over everything? He can change his mind if he wishes. So it's there, it's there in, in, the, um, in the Quran, this principle. And there's quite a number of these, these principles as well, uh, uh, quite a number of these verses that explain this. For example, we shall make thee recite to forget not, say that what Allah will. So Allah will make you forget some of the things that has been, have been given to you. And uh, Muhammad's life and, and the sequence in, of events in Muhammad's life is the principle that determines that. In fact, sometimes commands that Muhammad gave abrogate the Quran. So there are sometimes principles that Muhammad himself taught that take authority over the Quran itself. Um, one is the stoning, the command to stone people if they commit adultery. It's not in the Quran, but it's something that Muhammad taught nevertheless. In fact, the very first sermon that was ever given after Muhammad's death was given, uh, death was given by Umar, and he said, God sent Muhammad and sent down scripture to him. Part of what he sent down was the passage on stoning. So apparently there was a message on stoning. We read it and we were taught it and we heeded it. Um, the apostles stoned adulterers and we stoned them. But you see, the verse was then lost. It disappeared. Not something happened to it. It's not in the Quran today. And, and Umar says he, he, he fears that in the future people won't find a mention of stoning in the holy book and they'll go astray by neglecting this ordinance. So in this case, the example of Muhammad actually takes priority over whatever was in the Quran. Uh, the example of jihad is another case. Earlier in the Quran, you have verses like there's no compulsion in religion and forgive and forget the unbelievers if they say unpleasant things. But the later verses have the final word and they say fight the unbelievers or, or kill the unbelievers. For example, there's a verse in chapter 2, verse 109, forgive and overlook the unbelievers until Allah brings his command. And the great commentator Ibn Kathir said this verse was abrogated by the verse uh, kill the idolaters, which is chapter 9, verse 5, and also fight the people of the book, which is chapter 9, verse 29. So the, the pardon for the disbelievers that had been received earlier was cancelled later in Muhammad's life, and Muhammad acted on that as well. So Ibn Kathir said um, that the messenger of Allah and his companions used to forgive the disbelievers and the people of the book, just as Allah had commanded until Allah allowed fighting them, then Allah destroyed those who he decreed to be killed. So it's really important that in uh, the, the sequence of events in Muhammad's life, the things that he did and said, um, and, the, and the order in which things were revealed in his life becomes the, the dominant principle for interpreting the Quran. Now what I'm doing is explaining that when you say the Shahada and declare that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, you're buying into principles that the Quran explains and that are part of Muhammad's life of abrogation and of the, the, the priority of Muhammad's life in interpreting the Quran. You're, you're buying into the, the supremacy of Muhammad, really, uh, in Islam. And on the basis of Muhammad's life, what he did and said, uh, and also on the Quran as well, Islam constructs the Sharia, which means the path, the road on which you walk. But basically that road is paved with the events in Muhammad's life, with the example and the teaching of Muhammad's life. You're walking on Muhammad, on his life, basically, and you're walking in the footsteps of Muhammad when you walk on the Sharia. So you bound yourself to everything that he's, he's done and said. Now, um, some of the things that he didn't say have to do with uh, everyday customs, like what do you say to a person when they sneeze? And uh, which shoe you put on first? You put your right foot on, right shoe on first. So Muhammad had instructions about lots and lots of details uh, of life. And so pious Muslims follow those, and they try and follow them in detail, 
um, because Muhammad did it or said it and he said, you've got to please Allah and he's the messenger and they've agreed to do it, there's actually a spiritual permission that's been given when they say the shahada in their, in their hearts to, to live according to these principles. But it's also important to realize that um, some of the things that Muhammad did and, and said impact people very profoundly and uh, can be very destructive for them. So people are buying into that as well. I mentioned the stoning verse or this idea of stoning adulterers, which is something that Muhammad did and said, although the verse is not actually in the Quran. There was a case that was reported from northern Nigeria in 2002 in Time magazine, uh, which said an Islamic court in Nigeria has ordered that Amina Lawal, who bore a child more than nine months after her divorce, should not be executed by stoning until 2003 when her baby is weaned. That means when the baby begins to eat solid food and no longer the mother's milk, then the mother should be stoned to death. Well, how did this happen? How did the judges come to that decision? What had happened in Nigeria is that the government of Nigeria gave the, the, some of the northern states permission to have Sharia law, and then uh, someone commits adultery, apparently claimed to be, becomes pregnant out of wedlock, and so the judges make this ruling. Why are they making that ruling? Why would they rule that this woman should be killed? And why wait? until the baby is weaned. Well, those judges have said the shahada and they've bound themselves to the example and the teaching of Muhammad. And what they're doing is they're replicating his principles and setting out the pathway that this woman is supposed to be walking on. The sharia demands it because of Muhammad's example. And in fact, there was a tradition, a hadith, in which a woman came to Muhammad and confessed her adultery and he declared this penalty. And I'll just read that hadith out for you so you'll see the logic of the judges and why they made that decision. So there came to Muhammad a woman from Gamid and said, Allah's messenger, I've committed adultery, so purify me. He turned her away. On the following day she said, Allah's messenger, why did you turn me away? By Allah, I have become pregnant. He said, well, if you insist upon it, go away until you give birth. When she was delivered, she came with the child wrapped in a rag and said, here's the child, I've given birth to him. And Muhammad said, go away and suckle him until you wean him. And when she'd weaned him, she came to Muhammad with the child, holding a piece of bread in his hand, so the child has a bit of food to show that he's eating. And she said, Allah's apostle, here he is, I've weaned him, and he's eating food. She's still asking to be purified from her sin. Muhammad then entrusted the child to one of the Muslims and pronounced punishment, and she was put in a ditch up to her chest, and he commanded people, and they stoned her. Now, I think it is actually against the human conscience uh, in a natural sense to be so cruel to someone, a woman who's had a baby. And the baby loses its mother as well. But the reason why the judges make that decision is that they are bound to Islam through their shahada. They're bound to follow the example and the teaching of Muhammad. He is the messenger of Allah. They need to follow his example. So these principles, the life and the teaching of Muhammad, have very profound implications and affect many people. Another thing that's important to understand is that in the teaching of Muhammad and in the Quran, there's a lot of polemic or arguments and attacks on other groups. So that's part of the, the message of Muhammad as well. For example, the Quran speaks of the people of the book. Um, these are a subcategory of idolaters, according to the Quran, people who associate others with God. And uh, these include Christians and Jews. And the concept of the people of the book in Islam means that Christianity and Judaism are claimed to derive from Islam. Islam is regarded as the original religion. And um, there were these Muslim prophets such as Moses 
and Jesus and David, and they were given books from God, which laid out Islam. But the people that followed those books corrupted the books, according to Islam. And now Christians and Jews followed the corrupted versions of these books that were given to these prophets. So Christianity and Judaism, according to the Quran, is a kind of distorted derivative of Islam. And their followers have gone astray from the true path. And Islam teaches that Christians and Jews can only be freed from being on the wrong path when Muhammad comes and, and clears everything up. And so there's a lot of, there are some positive comments about Christians and Jews in the Quran, but there's quite a lot of negatives as well. It says in, in chapter 3, verses 113, 114, that some Christians and Jews are faithful and believe truly. But there's a lot of negative comments as well, and particularly about Jews. And the final word really is condemnation. So when you say Muhammad is the messenger, you buy into a lot of denigration of Christians and Jews. This is really expressed uh, most powerfully in a prayer called Al-Fatiha, which is the first chapter in the Quran. It means the opening, and it's part of the daily prayers of every Muslim. It's said 17 times a day if you say your prayers regularly and properly. And this Al-Fatiha is a prayer for guidance. I'll read a translation. In the name of Allah, the merciful, the compassionate, praise belongs to Allah, the Lord of all being, the all-merciful, the all-compassionate, the master of the day of doom, Thee only do we serve, to thee we pray for succor or help. Guide us in the straight path. Remember, Islam is about guidance. So this prayer, which is the heart of Islamic piety and devotion, is a prayer to be on the right path, the path of those whom thou hast blessed. Now listen to this, not against those, um, against, not of those of whom thou, against whom you, thou art wrathful, wrathful. So it says, guide us in the straight path, the path of those thou hast blessed, not those that you are wrathful against and not those who've gone astray. Now, who are the people that Allah is wrathful against or is angry about? Who are the people that are said to have gone astray? Who are these people that a Muslim prays 17 times a day not to be like? Well, as it happens, Muhammad is the, is the principle for interpreting the Quran and um, it's explained in a tradition of Muhammad that the Jews are under the curse of Allah. They, are, they have his wrath and the Christians have gone astray. So Ibn Kathir says about this passage, these two paths are the paths of the Christians and the Jews, a fact that the believer should be aware of so that he avoids them. The Jews abandoned practicing the religion while the Christians lost the true knowledge. That's why the anger is upon the Jews, while led astray, Ibn Kathir said, is more appropriate of Christians. And there's a tradition that Muhammad said, those who've earned the anger of the Jews and those that have led astray are the Christians. This is quite incredible that every pious Muslim who prays five times a day, in those five prayers, 17 times, goes through the Al-Fatiha, and in that is a prayer that they won't be a Christian and they won't be a Jew. So at the heart of Islam is a rejection of Christianity and Judaism and also of the Bible, because these are the books that are supposed to be corrupted, uh, the books of the Christians and the Jews. And there's a lot of very negative comments about non-Muslims in general and Christians and Jews in particular. So when you accept and say the Shahada, you accept spiritually the principle that Jews and Christians are on the wrong track. In fact, the Jews are cursed. So anyone who says the Shahada is actually cursing Christians and Jews. I remember listening to one Muslim who'd left Islam and she said she doesn't like that prayer because it's every Muslim 17 times a day is cursing Christians and Jews. So you're buying into that as well, to a culture of cursing and of rejection of, in fact, what is the truth. Uh, also, the Quran says that Muslims are superior to other peoples. 
Uh, there's this very famous passage, chapter 3, verse 110. Not only is Muhammad the best prophet, but his people are the best people. It says, You are the best nation ever brought forth to men, bidding to honor, forbidding dishonor, and believe in Allah. Had the people of the book believed, it would have been better for them. So it says here that the Muslims have the role of commanding what's right and wrong for the rest of the world. And in chapter 48, verse 28, it says that um, Allah has sent Muhammad with the guidance and the religion of truth that he may cause the religion of truth, that is Islam, to triumph over every religion. So there's a Muhammad's teaching and example and also the message of the Quran say that Islam should dominate other religions. How will this happen? Well, the Quran explains in chapter 9, verse 29, that as far as Christians and Jews are concerned, the people of the book, it says this is established by fighting them. And actually the Arabic word for fighting is based on the word for killing. So if you, if you know the Arabic, you understand this word for fighting doesn't mean what two children do in the playground. It means people with swords trying to kill somebody else. Fight those who believe not in Allah nor in the last day and don't forbid what Allah and his messenger have forbidden. So you're fighting people who don't agree with Muhammad. Such men as practice not the religion of the truth, being those who have not, who've been given the book. So Jews and Christians who don't accept Muhammad's guidance, fight against them and kill them, that means until they pay the tribute and have been humbled. So this is a, a command to fight against and even to kill Christians and Jews. It's very interesting when you look at the sayings that Muhammad gave about the end times, about what will happen at the end of the world, um, because there's this uh, prophecy that when Jesus returns, as I mentioned in the uh, previous lecture, that he will break the cross and there will be no more tolerance uh, uh, for people who don't share the Islamic faith. So Jesus, according to the message of Muhammad, will be the one who will destroy Christianity. In fact, he'll destroy every faith except Islam. So there's quite a lot of animosity or antagonism towards uh, uh, non-Muslims and specific, specifically against Christians and Jews. Actually, probably uh, the Jews suffer the worst. The, the, the anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish sentiment in the Quran and in the teaching of Muhammad is very strong. For example, there's a tradition of Muhammad that Muhammad said, the hour will not be established until you fight against the Jews, and that's killing the Jews, and the stone behind which a Jew will be hiding will say, O Muslim, there's a Jew hiding behind me, so kill him. So at the end of all things, even the stones will cry out to tell Muslims to kill the Jews. So that's why I say, this is something Muhammad said, so that's why I say when you say the Shahada and agree that Muhammad is the messenger of God, you accept these claims about the future as being true. And you endorse the hatred and even the destruction of Jews and Christians too. So these are very powerful and disturbing spiritual principles to buy into when, the sh when you say the Shahada. The rejection also of Jesus' death, saving death on the cross because the Quran rejects that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. This is embedded in daily practice of worship because Al-Fatiha, that opening chapter of the Quran, is recited 17 times a day in the daily prayers. More than 200,000 times in a lifetime, a pious Muslim prays that they won't be like Jews who are under the wrath of Allah or Christians who have gone astray. There's also two other subjects I'd like to draw your attention to that are part of the example of Muhammad, the teaching of Muhammad. Um, in addition to a claim to being superior, in addition to violence and threats against people of other faiths, rejection of the gospel, hatred really of the cross, you also have a lot of antagonism to women. 
There are traditions uh, of Muhammad that women are deficient in their intelligence and in their religion. Muhammad said that there'll be far more women in hell than men. He also said that if a woman or a dog walks in front of a man who's praying, that annuls the man's prayers. He gave permission in the Quran for husbands to beat their wives. And this principle has been held up, upheld uh, by a leading Muslim jurist and a leading legal authorities from the Muslim world, all around the Muslim world in recent years. Sometimes people describe the life of Muhammad, you'll see on television shows, they'll say how he was married to Khatija, who was an older woman for 20 years, and it was a monogamous marriage and a, and a happy marriage. But they don't always report that he married Aisha, his close friend's daughter, when she was six or seven, and consummated the marriage when she was nine. That's actually nine lunar years. So it's probably could be even not quite nine by our calendar. Muhammad was in his 50s. You might say that uh, seems a very strange thing for a man in his 50s uh, to be married to and, in fact, having sexual relations with a nine-year-old girl, perhaps even an eight-year-old girl. Um, the very sad thing is that the, the effect of the, Muhammad's example for men who've bound themselves to that is that in a number of countries today, the marriage age for girls is nine lunar years, and that's the case in Iran today. So it's quite lawful for a man to marry a young girl in Iran. And the practice of, of marrying these young girls is uh, very widespread. And it's a pious and righteous practice according to Islam because the, these people have confessed that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. So people that bind themselves into the shahada are also binding young women into a lot of suffering because it's quite inappropriate for such a young woman uh, to, or a young girl to be married to, to a man. In fact, um, in the Quran, there's a verse, chapter uh, 65, verse 4, that says that if a girl has not yet had her first period and she's divorced, so a divorcee who's 10 years old and hasn't had a period, you have to wait three months before she can be remarried. So this is not even the example of Muhammad, it's even in the, in the Quran itself. There's a principle that a divorcee who's 10 years old, you have to wait three months. Now, these are terrible things to impose upon young girls and a lot of girls suffer uh, from this. These reports of Muhammad's life and the way he treated women are really quite distressing. He also gave his blessing to female circumcision. He did this in a tradition that said that someone who circumcises girls shouldn't cut too deep. It's all right to cut, but not too deep. And his um, wife asked him once, when does legally um, um, uh, sexual relations, when do they actually happen? When you can say someone's actually had sex? He said, when the circumcised parts touch each other. So the man and the woman are both circumcised and their parts touch in the circumcised places. So what he's saying by that is he's just presupposing as normal that women will be circumcised. And there's one school in Islam that makes circumcision of women compulsory. That's the Shafi'i school. And you'll find that wherever that's practiced, uh, circumcision of women is uh, almost universal. So in Egypt or amongst the Kurds in Iraq, parts of Saudi Arabia, not all of it, in Indonesia, for example. In other places, there are other schools of Islam where it's regarded as an acceptable practice or recommended, permissible perhaps, but not compulsory, and the practice is, is less common. But it comes from the example of Muhammad. And millions of girls uh, suffer greatly because of this, this teaching um, that he gave. He also gave permission to have sexual intercourse with women that you take captive in war. Um, there is a, 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 a collection of, of hadiths, the Sahih Muslim, that have been uh, published. And uh, Abdul, uh, Abdul Hamid Siddiqui, who is a distinguished fellow of the Islamic Research Academy in Karachi, translated the, the Sahih Muslim, the collection of, of the traditions of Muhammad, into English. 
and he gives um, an explanation of a particular section uh, dealing with, uh, with the captive women, and he says it's permissible to have sexual intercourse with a captive woman after she's had her, a period and finished it. In that case, if she has a husband, her marriage is abrogated after she becomes captive. So the heading in the, in the Sahih Muslim says that, and he explains this in the footnote by saying this refers to slave girls or women who've been captive in holy war. He says when women are taken captive, their previous marriages are automatically annulled, and sexual intercourse with these women is lawful under certain conditions. So that's incredibly cruel, the Muslim man, if they take a woman captive in war, is not committing adultery by having sex with a married woman because, wow, her marriage has been abrogated because she was taken captive. So she's divorced but for the fact that she's been taken captive. And uh, this is very disturbing that Muhammad would have taught such a thing to his followers and it's still being practiced today. We also see Muhammad's treatment of women um, he married Safiya, a Jewish captive from Kaiba, which is a community of Jews that he attacked. But he had just before that tortured her husband and had him killed. And her father had been killed as well. And she was led to Muhammad by a friend, Bilal, past the dead bodies of her male relatives. And later, Muhammad rebuked Bilal for his insensitivity in, taking him to her, taking, in bringing her to him past the dead bodies of her relatives. Muhammad didn't think that he had been insensitive by killing them and then requiring her to have sex with him a short time later. And he also took a captive, a Jewish woman, Rahana, in Medina after killing all her male relatives. She refused to marry him but stayed as a concubine or a slave in his house. So the example of Muhammad, the Sunnah, becomes the foundation of Islamic law. So these events, these acts that Muhammad did participate in and blessed become part of Sharia law. So when you say the Shahada, you are spiritually confessing that these are valid and good things. You have agreed that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah and he said as the messenger that if you do that, you support his example. Now all these, these aspects of Muhammad's life are quite disturbing and one of the effects of that is that Muslims put in lots of rules to forbid people from criticizing Muhammad. And part of Sharia law is lots of restrictions that stop people being sarcastic or making jokes. And you'll sometimes see long lists of the many ways in which you're not allowed to be rude to Muhammad. And as we saw earlier, Muhammad even blessed that man who killed his, his concubine, his slave wife, because she'd been rude about him. And uh, so that that's gives a basis, in fact, for really ill-treating people who criticize Muhammad. I'd like to speak about one final subject that is related to the example and the teaching of Muhammad, and that has to do with deception. You may remember in the passage I read from, uh, from, from Daniel that there was a reference to this stern-faced king that would rule through deception and, make, and throw down truth to the ground. And one of the characteristics about Muhammad's example is that he, he did use deception. He used it in warfare. For example, he said, war is deceit. He also um, lied to his wives. Now, he was supposed to take turns with them, um, but one time he was a bit out of turn and uh, uh, was spending some time with uh, his slave girl and uh, he lied to the other wives about that. And uh, they were very upset. What would you think if your prophet was not telling you the truth? Uh, but he, he made a rule that it was all right uh, for the sake of marital harmony um, to give a good impression to your wife. And, and so in Islamic law today, it's still the case that a husband can uh, deceive his wife, not tell the truth to her, if it helps them be happier in their marriage. And that's one of the areas in which deception is permitted in Islam. 
He also um, uh, prohibited people from saying bad things about themselves. If they had a secret, they weren't allowed to confess that secret. And also, if someone entrusted you with your secret, you weren't allowed to say. He also gave permission to people under certain circumstances to lie about their faith, to say, for example, they weren't a Muslim in order to protect themselves. And Muslim scholars sort of disagree about whether that's a good practice or a bad practice, uh, but it is there, it is part of Islam, it's one of the permissions. It's very different, you know, in Christ said, you should witness to your faith and be willing to die, take up your cross and follow me. But Muhammad said, under certain circumstances, you can lie about your belief in him if it'll help you get through a, a, a tricky spot. There's a verse in the Quran, chapter 3, verse 28, which says, let not the believers take for friends or helpers, the word means guardians, protectors, unbelievers, that is, don't take non-Muslims as your friends rather than believers. You shouldn't make friends with non-Muslims. And if you do that, God will not help you. But there's an exception, except by way of precaution that you may guard yourselves from them. And that word guard is used as the basis for a word in Islam, taqiyah, which means to guard yourself by deception. So in this verse, the Quran says that you can make friends with unbelievers as a protection and as a deception. Um, and uh, this is explained in the commentaries. Al-Zamakshari, a great commentator from the 12th century, said it's permitted for Muslims to take non-Muslims as guardians, that is, to be, have non-Muslims in a position of power over you if you're frightened of them, that is, if Muslims feel threatened, but what is meant is that it's not really the way it's, it seems. He says the heart is comforted by enmity and hatefulness towards the non-Muslim. So the Muslim can, can go under the authority and protection of a non-Muslim as long as they let their heart be comforted by hatred towards the non-Muslims. Another um, commentary um, is from Ibn Kathir. Believers in some areas and times fear for their safety from disbelievers. So the Muslims are in a minority position, they're not in power. They're allowed to show friendship to the disbelievers outwardly, but never inwardly. So they can pretend to be friends. For instance, Al-Bukhari recorded that Abu Ad-Darda said, we smile in the face of some people, though our hearts curse them. And Al-Bukhari, he said, quoting one of the hadiths, uh, said that Al-Hassan said that the, the taqiyah is allowed until the day of resurrection. So these are very uh, challenging ideas that um, Muhammad allowed deception and if Muslims are in a vulnerable position and a position where they might have some fear, they're allowed to pretend to be friends with non-Muslims. Actually, there's some debate about this. Some scholars say it was only in the early stages, um, but uh, when Muslims, Islam became dominant, then it didn't apply anymore. But the, the implication of that is when Muslims, like in a minority position in many places of the world, with non-Muslim governments, that they're allowed to make friends with non-Muslims, um, but only as a protective measure, as long as they hold on to hatred in their hearts. In fact, there's quite a lot of uh, thought and, and uh, writing that's happened about the issue of telling lies in Islam. And Al-Ghazali, a great scholar, said that it's permissible to lie if attaining a goal is permissible and obligatory to lie if a goal is obligatory. But he said it's usually better to give a misleading impression because lying is a bad thing, and if you give a misleading impression, then um, it's a little bit safer. Uh, one scholar said, gave an example of this misleading impression. Um, for example, if uh, someone comes to your house and wants to see Fred, and Fred's in the house, but you don't want to say that Fred's there because Fred said he doesn't want to be disturbed, you can say, well, Fred's, Fred's not here, meaning he's not here. And then the person who's come to you doesn't know that you're saying not here. 
and he thinks he's not in the house, so they go away. You've protected yourself because you haven't told a lie, and Allah won't be so angry with you. You've just given a misleading impression. And uh, I don't know, if you pay attention, sometimes you'll find that um, Muslim leaders, if they believe this, not all Muslims follow this, some Muslims will just never tell a lie, but if they're well-trained and they know what the commentaries say, they might give just a misleading impression instead of giving you the truth. Um, an example happened in, in Australia where a Muslim leader was asked about polygamy. And, and he said, uh, it only happens, uh, the, the marriage only happens if the woman is willing. And the person that was interviewing him said, oh, that's great, you know, the, 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 the polygamy doesn't happen unless the woman is okay for it to happen. But actually the man didn't say that. He said, the marriage doesn't happen unless the woman says yes. So you have to have the approval for the marriage, but the woman doesn't have to know about the polygamy. In fact, in Islam, if you marry a second wife, you don't have to tell her that you're already married. But he gave that impression, and the interviewer got a misleading impression. It's very clever. So there's a lot of deception in Islam. And sometimes people, you know, they get caught out. There was a famous situation where Yasser Arafat had, had entered into uh, all these agreements for peace, and just a few days later were, was recorded in South Africa, declaring that um, he hadn't meant it to, uh, in a truthful way at all. And uh, uh, I've taken... Uh, notes of, uh, of lectures that have been given by Muslims saying that um, it's even permissible to uh, mislead Muslims and not tell them about the plan of establishing Islam in the country. There's a sort of uh, need-to-know basis uh, that Muslims are told. Uh, one man in Australia, Zakaria Matthews, who's a significant leader, Islamic leader, he said, secrets should be hidden. The prophet hid the secrets of his journey and only disclosed it to those with strong ties to him. Then they were told what they needed to know in order for them to act. They were on a need-to-know basis. Today we talk about issues we don't need to be talking about. And so we need less talk and more action. So he says that it's, uh, it's necessary, in fact, sometimes not to tell the truth even to fellow Muslims. And one of the problems with the Muhammad's example with lying and deception and deception being part of the Sharia, the pathway on which you walk when you're rightly guided, is it creates a culture of deception. And in fact, the whole culture can be affected by this. Um, so that uh, telling lies, white lies, all sorts of things can be just be cut, become part of culture. I've met Christians from the Middle East who find that in their culture, in their experience, they're affected by living in an environment with many Muslims and they will often tell a white lie as well. Someone invites you for dinner and you really don't want to come, so you say, oh, I've got another appointment, but it's not true. So you give a misleading impression. It becomes part of your culture. I've become convinced over the years that um, when someone renounces Islam and renounces the Shahada, they also need to renounce deception because it's such an important part of the way Muhammad spread his faith and the way people enter Islam, and it's actually part of the way Islam is presented in, in the world today. It's disturbing, uh, but that's, that's the way it is. Uh, Jesus said the truth will set you free. So if you choose the truth and choose to follow Christ, you need to renounce living in the way that the Shahada requires you to live. So what, the point I'm wanting to make today is that the covenant of surrender to Islam, to the example of Muhammad, has many implications. It involves contempt for non-Muslims, particularly Jews and Christians, and specifically hatred of Jews and a desire that they'd be killed on the last day. It involves contempt for women, abuse of women and, and human rights abuses such as domestic violence and uh, female circumcision, uh, rape of women taken captive in war. It includes cruel punishments such as stoning adulterers. Um, it includes deception. 
It includes a false sense of superiority, a feeling that you are the successful one, that you'll be the best. When you, re- when you leave Islam and follow Christ, you don't just say, I don't believe in Muhammad anymore. You're actually rejecting a covenant with all these things. And finally, remember that there are the curses in the Quran for those that reject the example of Muhammad, which is death and the fire of hell. And in fact, the apostasy law in Islam says that anyone who leaves Islam should be killed. Muhammad said that someone can be killed and they should be killed if they leave Islam. So there's a curse of death that's part of the Shahada as well because you're affirming the message of Islam and the example of Muhammad. So when you renounce Islam, when you leave Islam and you become a Christian, you're renouncing all these things. And actually, I think it's quite a helpful practice if you're helping someone uh, renounce Islam and leave Islam to systematically go through all these things and say, oh, well, I'm not going to be a liar. I'm going to honour women and honour them as being made in the image of God as it's explained in the book of Genesis. I'm going to fight for people's rights and not abuse them. I'm going to be gentle to my wife and kind to her. I had to laugh. I once heard the testimony of a guy who'd been a radical Muslim and he became a Christian. And his wife um, came out of that country and, and joined him later. And she didn't know he was a Christian, but she observed that he was being kind and gentle to her, which she was quite amazed by. So she began to bully him and, and boss him around. And the poor fellow, his heart had been convicted and he knew that he had to love his wife and be kind to her, but she turned into the tyrant instead of him beating her and oppressing her. But he made a deep heart change. He renounced that abuse and, and contempt for his wife that had been part of his religion. He knew he had to do that because he was following Jesus. And actually, the the change that occurred in his life touched her heart very deeply. So there's lots of things that need to change. And um, when I work through in the next few lectures the Dhimma Pact and what it means to surrender politically to Islam, when we've done that, we're going to come back to the Shahada and I'm going to explain to you how to renounce it and how to break with all these principles that are tied up, all the package that comes with this confession that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah.